Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Josh Brooks to the show. Josh Brooks is a partner with Waybright LLC with offices in Jacksonville, Florida, Asheville, North Carolina, and Torreon, Mexico. Waybright is a project development finance and management platform designed to accelerate the deployment of clean energy, clean water, and other infrastructure services across the U.S. and Mexico. Prior to Waybright, Josh served as aide to Amory Lovins, founder and former chief scientist of RMI, a world-leading energy and economy think tank. There, Josh focused on implementing integrative design across the energy-intensive sectors, transportation, industry, buildings, and electricity generation, as well as utility business model innovation and energy regulatory reform, which resulted in numerous successful legislative initiatives. Josh, how are you today? Raj, I'm getting to hang out with you, one of my favorite people, and talk about issues that I care about. So I'm about as well as I can be, buddy. Josh, I really appreciate that. And I want to give credit to Glenn Hallam from Greenwave. I think I saw you speak on his event three or four years ago. And since then, you know, we've become friends. We've discussed so many different topics. But today, specifically, I want to double click on the topic of water. And I'd like to kick it off with, you know, what happened in Jackson, Mississippi last year. And if you can kind of give us your expert point of view on what happened and perhaps why it's important. Yeah, so I, I like how loosely, uh, how loose our interpretation of the word expert is here, Raj. This is great. I like <laughs> it as long as we, you know, are this flexible with definitions. I think we'll have a good time. Um, but yeah, so Jackson is really um, kind of a, a tragic tale in a system that's almost designed for these kind of outcomes, and that's that's really regrettable. So, so what happened there was a uh, kind of a lesson in one of the oldest public infrastructure services in the country, and it's in, it's indicative of just our inadequate upgrades and our inadequate operation and maintenance of one of the most necessary public services in this country. So kind of across the board, water and wastewater treatment and sewage infrastructure, it's, it gets the least amount of visibility. And perhaps that's because compared to gas and electric, it's the, you know, it's the, it's the least sexy of, of the infrastructures. But in, in Jackson, what happened in Jackson was years of facilities that were over overrun with outdated technology, a lot of metering in this country is a hundred, a hundred plus years old, right? One hundred and thirty years old. Um, 
I think New Orleans, for example, some of the water infrastructure there is 113 years old. Uh, New York City still has pipes um, that we know were put in in, eight, uh, in the year 1899, right? So let's just frame that. These are two you know, bigger metropolitan areas. Um, in Jackson, what happened was a, uh, a facility that was overworked. Um, the repairs, uh, there was this whole cycle of repairs um, that were attempted, renovations that were attempted, metering that uh, was brought in, and it was inadequate. It didn't necessarily, not, not even all the metering matched up. Uh, people were getting billed at different um were being built for incorrect rates based on what, how the meter was set to measure, um, et cetera, et cetera. And that was all indicative of um, a system that was in real need of care and attention. So when the, there was a, a flood, um, the system was just overworked and the pumps and everything just could not keep up with the strain. Um, when they went to repair it, there was uh, inability to maintain water pressure um, the treatment of the water was not adequate. So this caused uh, pathogens, uh, et cetera, to be released into the, to the waterways, into the, the potable water supply, et cetera. So you had this period of time in which the water was not safe, nor was the su supplier pressure in the system adequate to deliver water to the residents. So there was a shortage. Businesses um, had to close down temporarily. Um, water had to be you know, shipped in. It was turned into a, uh, you know, it was declared as a disaster. I believe FEMA had to come in and, and all this stuff. But really, ultimately, what it does is it highlights a problem that's indicative across the country. So I happen to be privy to a conversation, and I won't say the city, but we were on a call together with a very large city the day after there was an extremely heavy rainfall. And you were talking to one of the facility managers about certain aspects of the wastewater treatment facility. And I don't know exactly how to describe it, but the power went out, some of the lifts weren't working. What doesn't the average person know about regarding wastewater storms that you just kind of highlighted regarding Jackson? Sure. So water treatment is both for potable water, but also for river water. Um, and, you know, river water kind of goes everywhere anyway. But so water treatment is, is for both of those, uh, if not. So water treatment's for, you know, both potable water and then water that's returned to rivers, estuaries, bogs, etc. Um, you expect and need the water that goes back to these, to the rivers and everything to also be of a standard quality because people are in there, animals, wildlife, etc. Um, and if that water's not maintained to a high enough standard, that's a hazard for the community, right? So again, it's for what you're exposed to in the environment, but, uh, but also for what comes out of your sink. So if that water isn't, uh, that water is monitored and everything um, and for any kind of variations, fluctuations in its um, in how well it's been treated. So in this case, when the power went uh, power went down, it caused the um, treatment 
well, it just caused a failure in the plant to be able to treat water for that period of time. There's that moment where you switch from, um, you know, where you switch from the main grid s- supply and then you have to go to backup generators. And if those, uh, and in that moment, there can be a, a quality treatment issue. But then if those break down or fail or, you know, God forbid it, it happens with a flood or something and the, the pumps are overworked, um, you can actually release pathogens and everything into the river. Um, so that's a hazard here as well. It's not just about the stuff that's coming out of your sink, but it's about what's going, you know, in the river, in the community or, or what have you. So there, as we're talking more and more about the resiliency of the power grid, um, that that's important for more than just the refrigerator and the television at home. That's, that's also crucial for wastewater treatment. Um, and, and I think that's really it, Raj, is that the fundamentally there's, there's this systematic underpinning that keeps society moving. And this is our critical infrastructure services. Again, that's energy and that's water. Uh, some places it's also gas as well. And then of course there are others, but these systems are interdependent in a way. And it, you know, it's in the public's best interest that these things be, you know, well regulated and that the services that they need um, are, are provided. So it seems to me that Jackson is almost the proverbial canary in the coal mine, if you will. And mm-hmm. you mentioned resiliency. And I know that you're working on a couple of different projects and we're not going to mention where, but can you give a broad idea of the kind of resiliency you are designing for wastewater treatment facilities? Yes. So it's exactly what we were, what we were talking about when it comes to Jackson and when it comes to uh, these other places, the idea is with the, the reality of the situation is that hundred year storms are becoming yearly storms are becoming uh, twice a year storms, right? So the danger and the risk is increasing, and it seems to be, by at least my reading of the headlines, right, it seems that the occurrence of these risk events, uh, it's, it's, it's just increasing. So resiliency is more than just uh, the electricity. It's also the water treatment as a development and as the, the country becomes more and more um, urban and suburban and um, ran in, you know, kind of municipal city chunks, it's crucial that these, uh, these, it's crucial that these systems um, operate, that they function. Uh, public health is, is directly affected. So for the resiliency is key. Um, so because of that, you know, resiliency really is the buzzword right now that really unifies all relevant stakeholders across the spectrum because they know that they have to provide uh, provide these system services um, as close to uninterruptible as possible. So what we're doing in some of these cities are uh, what we're doing in some of these cities is to as much as possible island the critical services from the power grid. They work with the grid, but in the event of a grid outage, the facilities are able to operate without interruption. Um, So that's really what we're working on, Raj, is we're utilizing and we're 
thinking of water treatment facilities, wastewater treatment plants as a proper system. So we're looking at the inputs and the outputs and we're uh, finding where is it that we can use a portion of this to generate electricity through uh, anaerobic digestion, creating RNG, and we're you know using that. Um, there's all sorts of different ways you can use that byproduct, right? Basically, what we're doing is, you know, using these wastewater treatment facilities. Obviously, there's you can couple that with anaerobic digestion. The byproduct is methane gas, RNG, uh, different, you know, you, you'll hear it under different, um, you, you'll hear different terminology, different places. But what can you use that RNG for? Um, can you put solar in storage uh, at one of these facilities? What is, stuff of that nature? How can you uh, maximize the benefit or how can you maximize the resiliency um, at the location? So I'm going to ask a question from, you know, Joe Q Public. You're going to, the idea is to establish anaerobic digestion at the wastewater plant. Where from the water are you getting the feedstock or the product to run the digester? It's only water, isn't it? It's not only water. So it's, it's waste, it's sludge, it's the stuff you're, you know, you're flushing that's going down the sink. Um, so there's... Obviously, there's biomaterial in all of that, but there's also co-digestion. People may hear that that term may ring a bell. Uh, co-digestion, and so, uh, you'll see, um, actually, just this morning, there was a truck. I live um, in downtown Raleigh, North Carolina, and there's a, a number of restaurants here on the block, and there's there's this one place. It's a pretty solid meatball, meatball shop, I must say, but uh, they... Um, have a truck that comes in and collects the um, what's called fog, uh, fats, oils, and greases, um, collects those, and then it goes to a co-digester. Um, well, at least I'm assuming it does. It, it certainly seems like that's what they would be doing it for. Otherwise, it w- there wouldn't be a lot of financial incentive for a company to come and collect it. But that's what co-digestion is, is taking uh, the fats, oil, and greases from your restaurants or, or some such facility uh, and uh, pairing it with um, the regular effluent, the, uh, the sludge in the wastewater system, um, and co-digesting those uh, together, provided, of course, you've got the correct professionals who can um, do the really technical stuff that I'm, you know, that I certainly can't do, but which is maintain the, uh, the, uh, the chemistry, the mix, the, the microbes and everything um, to break down um, the material in the, in the co-digester um, to produce, you know, the biomethane. So general public, you know, we're not really drawn to these issues. We become aware of them when they show up in headlines, show up in the news. What do you think could be done to perhaps engage the public more when it comes to these kinds of, you know, water issues? It sounds like we're behind the eight ball. You've mentioned 100-year-old, you know, 130-year-old infrastructure what can we be asking of our perhaps local government officials, et cetera? You know, I don't know that we're going to have much of an option, but to be more engaged in the future, Raj, I think that this is going to, unfortunately, I think it's going to be an issue that everybody gets quite engaged and involved with regardless. Um, the recent examples of this are the Colorado River. I used to live not too far off the Colorado River um, in Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Um, the levels there are dropping, um, you know, substantially every year. 
Um, but then also with uh, extreme weather events, the kind of flooding and everything that has happened in, in parts of California, um, which, you know, on one hand is great for the drought, but in others, if the land's really arid and has been for quite some time, you start having landslides and things of that nature. So all, all of, um, all of this really gets to, um, really gets to thoughtful resource management and with, you know, increased salination of water due to a variety of issues, um, sea, uh, sea level rise, droughts in some places, extreme flooding, otherwise, um, old, outdated infrastructure no longer being able to handle uh, what's what's asked of it with population center density. The increasing demand for 100-year-old infrastructure to bear the burden for real, I mean, massive, rampant growth. Um, the, more and more, we're relying on our systems to do more than they were designed to. That's fundamentally a problem, right? To, to, I mean, like understatement of the year already, February 27th, I'm calling it. It's a major problem. Um, so I don't think that really Joe Q public is going to be able to um, kind of, you know, be indifferent to it much longer. I think that folks are going to have no option but to be much more mindful and thoughtful, proactive about uh, water. Certainly, you know, certainly um, water and energy, um, you know, it's are are the things that are constantly on my mind. It's, you know, just coming through a couple of uh, new uh, uh, polar vortexes hitting the Texas grid and then other parts of the Midwest last week. Uh, the demand on the system is growing. What this does to the volatility of of gas and the uh, the risks therein, you know, th- those are becoming headline topics every every day now. So we both kind of picked on to a certain extent hundred year old technologies infrastructure. We've talked about some true tried technologies, anaerobic digestion, RNG. Have you seen any? new technologies out on the horizon that are exciting you specifically to do with water and wastewater? Yeah. So let's, this is a fun one and I'm cheating a little bit because it's not necessarily new, but I can't help myself. Um, we've got to, you know, we've got to talk about it. So, um, you know, as, as I was saying, you know, earlier, we've got water infrastructure in this country that's still wooden. We have wooden mains in the country, um, which incidentally I learned from my, colleague Aubrey Smitherman earlier today, you know, if you have a crack in one of your water mains uh, and it's wooden, the best way to plug it, Raj, and really the only way to plug it if you're not going to, you know, remove and, and update the pop is you're just going to have to cut a little, you know, uh, uh, you'll have to cut a little rod out of a tree and use it to plug the hole in your wooden water pipe. Uh, thankfully, you know, wood swells when it gets wet, right? So it'll swell to fill up the space. Aubrey was sharing that anecdote with me not too long ago. Um, and it's like, yeah, well, you know, that makes sense. But ultimately, you would prefer to update the pop altogether, right? So, and, 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 sorry, the, and sorry to interrupt. I just want to ensure that I understand correctly. These are pipes that are made out of wood or wooden planks put together. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So there are there's still wooden water mains in parts of the country. You know, uh, out here on the East Coast, 
um, or the eastern part of the country um, up and down. You know, we've got 100, 113-year-old um, uh, water infrastructure, right? Um, so, yeah, you're going to have parts of your um, infrastructure that are wooden. Um, the the kind of the technology on the horizon, um, which is actually technology that's in the rear view mirror, and, uh, and these are ultrasonic meters. So in a lot of the water infrastructure in the country right now, we have um, – we have these just classic meters that uh, have what's inside. I think it's called a waffle and uh, it just flaps back and forth as water goes through it. And that's used to take some measurement. Um, these, so these only last a handful of years, maybe five years, seven years, something like that. Um, but starting in the fifties, Germany was rolling out ultrasonic meters in its infrastructure, which is kind of exactly what it sounds like. Um, in the U.S., these aren't ubiquitous yet. I think they've only got a fairly small portion of market share. Um, but there are massive metering projects alone, just metering projects in the, across the U.S. right now for municipalities. And, you know, I'm, I, I won't name where, but there, there's this project in the tune of $100 million where until very recently, leadership was inclined to to go to the standard tried and true, um, you know, kind of archaic metering technology until uh, some folks were able to convince them, no, no, you really want to go with an ultrasonic meter, something that doesn't have moving parts, something that'll last, you know, something that'll last for 20 years, a non-moving, a non-moving part, right? Uh, so that's really something that's on, on my mind today as we were talking. I was, I've been, you know, kind of dealing with, one of these projects, they've had the money, this municipality's had the money uh, for, I think it's two years now for this project, but they haven't been able to execute it uh, or to execute the bid for it because there's not enough staff to handle the problem, which is, you know, another big issue. Now, is this metering to residences or is it metering commercially? Where, where do these meters sit? I think they're I think they're throughout the supply chain and this this part of it I'm not really sure of Raj but I would imagine that it's uh, the um, kind of the utility side of the meter for both but I, I'm really not sure I just know okay. they're kind of throughout the system. Got it. Now, can you give a brief overview of Waybright Partners and your role at the organization? Waybright is a project development, finance, and management platform. So we're a bunch of recovering municipal utilities or uh, municipal utility leaders, um, capital finance market entrepreneurs, um, and then you know folks like myself, recovering power developer and regulatory expert. Um, again, using expert loosely here, but w what we do is we are working with best in class, state of the next art technology providers. And we are packaging system solution for municipal utility grids in the U.S. and Mexico. Um, so we go in and look at a holistic suite of solutions that can really step uh, uh, the utilities um, operations into the 21st century. A lot of these kind of bespoke technologies now that are coming to market and everything, they've cut their teeth with a very specific customer in mind 
um, you know, a big energy user like a data center, for example. Um, but they haven't, you know, these these newer technologies, be it in, depends on the use case, but sometimes it's, you know, next in class solar or next in class solar inverter could be a fuel cell, uh, could be a particular kind of uh, battery storage. They've cut their teeth with a very specific kind of client, again, a, a data center or something to that effect, maybe a university, could be a hospital, but they haven't yet begun to get into the utility side of the market. And as you know, as we know from the researchers out there who focus on this, there's a lot of waste in the grid. So really to help get the bogey down to something manageable in the energy transition, we need to start first on the demand side and work our way back. So what Ray, what Waybright does is we work with municipalities and technology providers to find the the elegant solution that is a system solution for a utilities operation. So what does that mean to just take it all down to a more aggregate level? Distributed energy solutions distributed uh, water solutions, distributed water treatment, if we can. Um, so distributed energy microgrids for residential development. Um, if we have a commercial and industrial center, try to get baseload generation as close to it as possible to reduce constraints on the grid, free up capacity a little bit, and then work with utilities to find a model that's best for them um, to support and manage and operate these technologies once we've deployed them. So I heard the word distributed several times, and I think that addresses the point of resilience where there's not a single point of failure. Correct. Correct. And it's also inherently less risk if the generation is closer to the point of use, right? We're not having to send power hundreds of miles. We're sending, you know, there's power at the point of use um, to one produce some kind of service there uh, wherever it's needed, uh, produce some kind of service wherever it's needed. Um, but two, in the event of a major grid out outage, make sure critical services are taken care of. Very interesting. Now, let's shift gears here and double down on your journey into energy. And, you know, you and I have kind of joked offline regarding this, and it's been partial joke, but the opportunities that are currently in the energy transition and how we hope that more people are able to participate. But as you like to say, a boy from Appalachia, how did a boy from Appalachia end up in the energy transition? I snuck in the party when the host was distracted is really what I think <laughs> happened. I think everybody else was looking around and I kind of squeezed in. Um, yeah, it, it is kind of crazy. I, I normally joke that I'm a recovering history teacher who was a recovering um, home builder. Uh, who was a recovering farm boy. Um, and, uh, but all of those things were very key, kind of key ingredients to, to the work I do today. So um, kind of the, the quick version is I went to um, Appalachian State University against my will when my mom um, informed me that I did not have an option. I was, I was going to school, so I wanted to find somewhere that was still in the mountains, close to home, so I could, you know, get back in the summers for work and everything, but also, you know, be close enough in case anyone uh, needed. And I lucked out with the with the school that I that I really picked because of its proximity. Um, 
they um, they had a fantastic program called Appropriate Technology. And although I wasn't in that program at the time, again, I was in uh, ended up going after the humanities. So I went after a history degree, um, which is its own kind of funny story. I took so many random classes that my uh, ad- advisor um, uh, told me that history was best suited for me because I could do some economics and I could do some uh, political science all, uh, but then I could have, you know, my philosophy classes too. So anyway, um, while at App State, they, there was a student organization called the Renewable Energy Initiative, and I ended up working with that uh, organization uh, in my undergraduate and then my graduate. And the students there had self-imposed a tax on, them, on themselves to implement renewable energy around the campus. And again, a lot of this is because there was that program called appropriate technology today we would call it sustainable technology right that's the more um more understood terminology um but that university was fantastically interesting uh for a variety of reasons so it's obviously nestled in the mountains um so historically like if you think back to to the founding of the university which is i think in the late 1890s maybe it was 1899 they had to um you know, they had to have their own little utility there. They dammed the river, um, electrified the community, boom, kind of build up around it. Um, so today you have this relationship with the town and the university very hand in hand. But the um, uh, the university had this really kind of dynamic energy uh, situation where they owned their own utility. They had students implementing renewable energy projects. Um, and so I just kind of fell in love to that with that. Uh, it was a public entity at a time when you really needed tax incentives to do any of these projects. But because it was a public entity, they couldn't enjoy any of the tax uh, tax benefits that, you know, you would that would inspire uh, developers to go after these projects and public private partnership opportunities weren't really appealing because suddenly you get into the issue of, well, can I uh, private entity owned property on public land for private profit, right? You can see how very quickly this gets mm-hmm. messy. And I was a 18, 19, 20 year old in this accidentally kind of navigating my way through it, but I very quickly kind of fell in love with, um, uh, with it. And, and, and so it just kind of became the thing, those issues became the thing that I focused on. So I, did that and worked for a couple of local utilities, New River Line and Power, Blue Ridge Energy Membership Co-op, um, and then went to private power development at a company which was at the time called NTE Energy. Uh, I did solar development with them before going to Rocky Mountain Institute. It's quite an interesting journey. What are some of the lessons you've yeah, learned about it, yourself? Um, that keeping as diverse, uh, I think I've learned that I just, I really, really, like a good problem to think about and that as diverse of a background as one can have the better. Um, I think that that's really it. Yeah. I think that, that, I think that's it Raj is that I just really have a value for the role that humanities and um, policy really play in this very, you know, ones and zeros world of energy and physics um, water and everything. I would agree. I think, I think the more diverse opinions we could bring to the table, the better off we're all going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You, you have to, 
broaden the the boundary of a problem, right? That's something that Amory was really prone to say was uh, um, he I forget who he quoted from it originally, but you know if you're um, if you're having trouble finding or or building or generating the solution, expand the scope of the problem, and and that's a very much a integrative design systems thinking approach. I like that. So I usually ask a future a future motivated question. But I want to make it two-pronged for you. It's 2030, 2035. Where do you see potentially way bright in the future? And the second part of the question is how or what, you know, magic wand question, what can we do to bring more attention to these issues? So way bright first, and then the second one, what can we do to bring more attention? Hmm. So one thing I think is going to happen is that these issues are going to bring attention to themselves. I, I don't think that there's a way to escape that um, for better and for worse. Right. Um, because of that, I think because of that, I think that there's just going to be this continuing growing of, of, of folks who are interested in, in working in these infrastructure spaces. Um, you know, for example, and, and this was something I meant to touch on earlier, Raj, and I just completely bypassed it. And forgive me for going on a, on a brief digression here. I, I promise I'll answer both parts of this question. But, you know, when municipalities are, um, you know, when that, a thing that municipalities really have to worry about is um, legacy knowledge and, and that turnover. So folks are, uh, they do, they're not um, going to the utility businesses, the public infrastructure work as much as they used to. And it, and it kind of makes sense, right? Because a lot of, you know, the U S is built at this point, we've got our roads, we've got our grid, we've got our water infrastructure, our gas infrastructure, all of this. So there's kind of a, um, there's a glut of folks going to it. Um, so one thing that, municipalities have to worry about is turnover and legacy knowledge. So when they're working in, and I know this, I mean, directly from some of the folks that I'm working with now, when they are um, going to retire, they actually have to work out some arrangement with um, the municipality, you know, to come back if needed and train new workforce on certain processes, certain equipment, certain methodologies, um, because the infrastructure has been in place for a while and that, and that information could be, um, could be lost. So the two kind of big issues that are facing, um, uh, municipal infrastructure repair, one is just implement like the, the financing of it. And, and that's actually that problem in some ways you would think it's been solved, but there are many ways in which the financing aspect of it with this, with the availability of funds that are out there is making uh, implementation of infrastructure solutions actually a little more difficult. We, we can talk about that too, but the, this other one is the labor. Um, so I think I, I bring that up to say the issues that we've been talking about today with water and power. Um, I think they're only going to get more and more of the kind of general national consciousness um, focusing on them. I think that we won't have an option, but to, to think about them more um, in terms of Waybright, um, you know, part of our work is because they're certainly, I mean, obviously there's a market 
opportunity there. There's a lot of work on in the in the infrastructure space that needs to be done. Um, so that so we're going to go after that as as much as we can. But secondly, we've all been in that world and understand what the the hiccups to it are, what the the t- the difficulties are, where the communication breakdowns are, and you know the number one kind of um, uh, roadblock to change for both you know the public space and you know just regular private business is um, uh, lethargy, apathy, um, you, know, you know wanting to copy paste. This is the way that we've done it. So this is the way we're going to do it. We know the tried and true works, right? Well, we're at this point now where the tried, the tried and true, um, it worked when you were, when we, you know, it worked when we were building a nation. It's not necessarily, um, it's not necessarily adequate. Well, it's just not adequate. I should say it worked when we were building a nation, but it's not adequate to maintain a nation, particularly a nation, um, of growing complexity and interconnectedness across a variety of dimensions. So we've really got to focus on solving this problem for a quality of life. And we need to question, this is something that I really spend a lot of time thinking about is in the um, regulatory space. You know, these business models, utility business models are not built for the world that we're in. We really need to go back to the drawing board on that and say, okay, these uh, these utility models, these business models, they no longer make sense. This, you know, uh, protected monopolies. What was where? What part of the supply chain are they well designed to serve? Where are they inadequate? Where where do we need to improve? Stuff like that. I think all of these questions are just you know going to become more and more prevalent. And right now, there's this resistance, this inertia, uh, and it's really you know, it's a time for rampant innovation. One, because the opportunity's there, but two, because we don't have a choice. Well, it sounds like the market is ripe for Waybright. Certainly hope so, my friend. Certainly hope so. I mean, it, you know, the kind of our core thesis is that we're not trying to privatize public service. You know, mm-hmm. um, these, there's this, if, if it's a public good, then the public, you know, they're kind of the, um, well, how would you say it? They're the um, quality control of it. They know if it's working or not. So you can't outsource the quality control of a critical service such as water, such as, well, I mean, I'd argue health and energy, right? Um, so with, you know, with that in mind, our, our motivation is to solve to solve these problems. And we're finding that there is a big community of collaborators out there um, who are seeing similar things. And the, you know, the great thing is that they're all in different verticals. Some of them are in the waste side, some are in the water side, some are in the um, uh, uh, food, food chain supply and recovery side. So so certainly agriculture um, power, all of these things and, and it's looking at these systems and where the overlaps are and that's where you target your solutions. Um, and then, so we are finding that network of collaborators, but it's really kind of, you know, we're really plugging away at seeing where are those opportunities to uh, unlock those market innovations. And, and they're, you know, they're in the headlines every day. Got it. So 
last question you know if someone's listening in you mentioned going from history teacher philosophy getting involved in renewable energy projects in college ending up at RMI and now here at Waybright scenic route interesting route but if someone would want to someone to get involved in this movement this transition clean tech green tech what advice would you have for them understand why the system is the way that it is so i was you know I, my on the power side my bias is always going to be solar and solar solar and storage right um i mean well i mean yeah i'll probably start with the efficiency first just so amory doesn't you know come at me in my dreams and 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 strangle me with the demand side interventions and stuff like that but my default on the power i always look at things from a um you know solar and storage perspective but I was really motivated to understand what is the utility business model and why are they set up the way that they are? What's the regulatory scheme around that? Because at the end of the day, all of these are structures that are man-made, both physically, but also on the policy and the regulatory side, right? Um, so I, when I had the opportunity, you know, after school and everything, after graduate school um, to go work, I gravitated toward the utility side of things because I I wanted to fundamentally understand the world I was operating in. And then once I did that, I went out into private sector and then I went to a a nonprofit um, and now I'm back doing private sector stuff again. Um, So I think that that is really my, my advice to folks is if you're interested in getting in either the water space, um, doing solutions, treatment, even if it's, um, you know, certainly um, overseas or in a, in a foreign market as well as uh, power, look at the fundamental operating structure that you're going into. Understand that as well as you can. And then look at the areas um, where you can see an innovation. You know, look at where there's an opportunity to improve, um, improve a problem um, or improve, improve some kind of, you know, process. I always, in general, I always want to be working on something that's a little outside of my grasp. If I'm not uncomfortable, then I'm, I don't feel like I'm learning anything. So anytime I take any kind of job, I want to be a little terrified. I want to be a little terrified. I want to be a little little unsure. So I think be a little terrified is a great place to end. Josh, I appreciate your time today and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Raj. I really appreciate you having me on, man. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech, green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.